for June 17th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 259, Man of Steel, and Jor-El Shall Restore Amends. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, and here with the fanfare is John Williams. Da, 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 da. Oh, wait, no. Uh, what? <laughs> no. There's, it's not, there's none of that? There's no fanfare. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Oh, God. I'm out of here. No. This, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is going to be scored by Hans Zimmer, so they're Hans Zimmer. I, I should pronounce that right. Um, Though, uh, so I'm going to. Yeah, and we're going to be listening to that. Uh, no, we are talking about Man of Steel, and in honor of Man of Steel, and in honor of Father's Day, and in honor of the 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 central father issues, issues of patrimony, of good parenting, uh, of, uh, oh, and spoiler alert, by the way, blanket spoiler alert for Man of Steel, uh, of whether you run out from the underpass to save your, uh, to save your father. <laughs> uh, here is the, uh, here's the question. Panel, what is the most awkward piece of advice your father has ever given you and and john why why did you you came up with this question why why did you say most awkward piece of advice well because you know there there are several exchanges between uh kal-el's adoptive father john kent and uh, and kal-el aka clark kent uh, over the course of the movie such as maybe you should have less, let that bus full of school children die or <laughs> No, no, no. Stand under the overpass and watch me get sucked into the tornado rather than run out and save me. Uh, it, it just it, it gets a little... Or, or, you know, not to pick entirely on, on Jonathan Kent, uh, maybe you should genocide our entire species rather than let them find a new home on Earth. Because I guess these Earth people, whom I've never met, sound pretty cool. <laughs> Her, her, your girlfriend. I like your girlfriend who's shooting away in the escape pod right now. Jump out out into space and save your girlfriend. Yeah, (laughs) that's a great one. Jump out into space and save your girlfriend. (laughs) Who I just just let leave, by the way. Dad, I can jump out into space and save my own girlfriend. Jeez. Well, Pete, you're first in the alphabet. Uh, let's let's have in honor of Father's Day a uh, piece of advice that's that's awkward. <laughs> well, okay, so here's a piece of advice that comes in a really awkward situation, and I don't think that this advice is is necessarily even rare, or certainly not unique to my father. But it's got to be one of the tougher situations to face as a father, and I can only imagine it happening to Superman, who's only called Superman like twice in the entire movie. So Kal El slash Clark Kent in this movie, where like General Zod runs up and just like punches him really hard, like right in the nuts, right? Like imagine that happens and he doubles over and he's really hurt. Like say he were playing a soccer game and that were to happen to him. Or say he were a little child and he were a catcher and this were to happen to him in a baseball game. And let's say like the holographic ghost of Russell Crowe were to appear to him and have the unfortunate duty of saying, walk it off, son. Walk it off. <laughs> Just walk it off. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like, I always kind of wondered, like, I always took that advice very seriously. Like, okay, I have to. 
Like if I walk, then it will, hey, you know, it sort of helps. It's sort of like the point of giving some sort of advice that will have no negative consequences because the act of pursuing the advice in and of itself at least distracts you from everything else that is happening, <laughs> right? Like I'm not sure if sort of peer-reviewed study to determine whether walking it off actually is beneficial to the level of pain and duration of pain you experience when being hit in the testicles. Uh, but um, I've certainly used it as a, as a home remedy, I suppose. <laughs> so, and I suppose Superman might as well. Although Superman rarely walks things off. He sometimes scowls and glares. Maybe he flies it off. I don't know. Um, but I hope someday... If I ever have children, which would be nice, you know, I'd love to have kids someday. Uh, first of all, I hope that they don't get hit in the testicles if they're boys. I mean, but w- we all wish things for our children that will never come to pass. Right. <laughs> yeah. And if and, so, and as, after a certain point, Pete, you have to sort of acknowledge that, that destiny is inevitable, that your time civilization has grown sere and waned, and that, you know, your children must inevitably get kicked in the testicles. Yeah, you have to recognize that every child has to make their own choice, which means doing exactly what you want them to do and wearing the outfit that you made for them. (laughs) (laughs) But perhaps someday I'll be faced with the the reality of having to inform or choosing to inform of my own to walk it off and to ask myself in that very moment, sort of a cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon kind of moment, like, have I become my father? What is that? (laughs) Excellent. John Parrish, next in the alphabet. Uh, awkward advice from Dad. What up? What up? What up? So this is, this is sadly not Superman related, but, uh, but a true piece of advice. So happy Father's Day, Dad, if you're listening. Uh, I was, this was many years ago. I was going to a New Year's Eve party uh, while, I was, while I was staying in Maryland briefly. And my dad said to me, uh, you know, John, I met your mother at a New Year's Eve party in 1972, so be careful. <laughs> that was going so well for the first half of that <laughs> I know. <laughs> so so who knows maybe you know who knows maybe this could be the greatest night of your life or you know who knows your destiny could be shaped tonight but be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just keep an eye out. Uh, I like how like in 1972 is an important piece of the puzzle. As if that like additional information is really going to communicate to you what sort of night it was and what you should be wary of. Is uh, yeah, 1972 could happen to you, so watch out. <laughs> that re- that reminds me of uh, that. Re- this this is a joke. This isn't my real answer, but that reminds me of uh, once on uh, like a round number birthday. I think it was 60. I asked my father, Dad, do you do you have any sage fatherly advice that you'd like to dispense? Now I'm all ears. I would love to hear it. Uh, and without skipping a beat, he looked me right in the eye, put his drink down, and said, "Son, use a condom." <laughs> <laughs> That's awkward. That's definitely awkward. Because <laughs> you see where he's coming from. Was he, was he meaning it as an insult to your existence? No, 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 no. Oh. He, he wasn't. He, he, was, uh, he was meaning it that, uh, well, you know, becoming a father is hopefully a result, not a, not a uh, surprise. You know, right. not Hopefully a, you have plenty of time to build the spaceship that will carry your children <laughs> to the stars, and you won't just have to cobble it together from spare parts. Right. Uh, right, yeah. How the, well, the, yes. But, um, the, not uh, supposed to diminish the work of many fathers of all types all around the world who are awesome, and we support uh, unflinchingly. 
Um, my, my real answer, though, I, I, I want to give uh, has to do with, and you have to know something about, about my father. He, he ran the family business. He took it over from his father uh, and ended up selling it for a variety of reasons, but, you know, was a uh, businessman for a, um, for a you know, number of years, for a decade there. And, and uh, no one is, is sort of less suited to the world of business than him. He was planning on being a professor and, like, leading a quiet life of research and got sort of dragooned into into running the family business because his father uh, fell ill. Anyway, but I I sometimes go to him for business advice and advice about, you know, entrepreneurial stuff and my own, you know, career and stuff like this. And so, you know, I thought, well, why not ask dad uh, about this little website that we have together? And, (laughs) you know, what can be done to to make overthinking it not necessarily more business-like, but maybe more self-sustaining and more profitable? And I said... So, Dad, any any uh, advice on uh, how how uh, we can uh, run this this website? And he sucked his teeth and looked at me and said, "Yeah, that's a tough one." <laughs> so um, he, he put he put his drink down and said, "Wear a condom." Wear a condom. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I don't know. Uh, so uh, yeah, no one has figured out this uh, web publishing business model yet, except for Ariana Huffington, I guess. And the <laughs> folks over at BuzzFeed. So uh, this is an announcement that we're going to be starting a lot of top 20 cat pictures posts uh, on overthinking it next week. No, we're talking about Man of Steel. Um, what did you think of the, the, the dueling fathers? I mean, both, both of them were, were profoundly strange, right, in, <laughs> in, in, slightly different, in slightly different ways. And the relationship, uh, the relationship was strange, right? Yeah, maybe you should let a lot of people die because I, I'm not sure they're ready for your jelly is a tough uh that's a that's a tough sell from kevin costner right totally totally i i almost feel like he he was not prepared personally for the reality of what clark kent was uh, was going to become what superman was going to become because uh, so, it doesn't really follow that he would know the consequences right so so he talks about how revealing that you know clark kent slash kal-el is this is this being from another planet is going to change people's belief systems and he says not to do it yet Right, the world isn't ready yet, and you kind of have to wonder whether he really knows if the world is ready, or it's really just him who's not ready, right? And it's like, oh, you are my son. Like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, like, I want you to be my son. I want this this facade to continue. Like, let's please keep things the way that they are. Right. Um, because I mean, that that sort of conjecture depends upon uh, a question of his ability to make, you know. Uh, good value assessments, right? Of like, what's going to happen? How does he know what's going to happen if he reveals himself to be this this alien thing? Yeah. At, at the same at the same time, there was a sort of uh, a sort of reticence and a, a willingness to admit to ignorance on uh, Jonathan Kent's part because you know Clark asked him straight up, "Should I let a bus full of school children die?" And his answer his answer isn't yes. It's well, maybe. And there's there's a conversation they have later, you know, right before his right before his untimely death, where you know they're in the truck and Clark essentially busts out the "You're not my real dad," and. And his response is, well, you're right, I'm not. So maybe you've got some other stuff to do. I don't know. So he's, he's willing to admit to his imperfect knowledge in a way that a lot of fictional dads, and maybe even a lot of real dads, aren't. Like, he's willing to admit, you know, I, I don't know what's best for you. I don't know everything that's going on that head of yours, partly because it's, you know, made of different genetic material than exists on this planet in any other form, you know, because you're an alien. 
<laughs> but aren't all children aliens to their fathers? Isn't isn't every like son and and a uh, a threat to sort of undermine all things that a father holds dear? Doesn't that go back as far as the, you know at least the ancient Greeks, right? Where it's like you know well, we you're going to become something and it's going to change the world, right? Like like I felt like one thing that this movie did that was kind of interesting is a lot of the. Uh, Situations around Superman were very analogous to really identifiable real-world situations, like when the kid can't handle all of the stimulation of the world around him, right? And the mother is like, you know, focus on one thing, right? It's it, the the kid's anxiety of the world being too big. Is I felt like something a lot of us could probably identify with. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 Definitely. And um, I think that was I think that was one thing that to to touch on that real briefly. I think that's one thing that this that this movie got right. That is easy to get wrong about Superman in that, you know, the the common complaint or the common uh, criticism of Superman is that it's tough to tell stories about him because he's so perfect. He's so supremely powerful. It's impossible to threaten him. And while, yes, that's true, you know, you also have to touch on the fact that he, he comes from a human family, that he's that he's a human being with the powers of essentially a god. And. And that went a long way towards making him human. The idea that, oh wait, he was he was a kid at one point, coming to terms with the fact that he can see through people's skin and hear things from a mile away and, and explode things with his eyes. You know, what must that have been like for him? It must have been pretty traumatic. Okay, so that's that's believable. That's plausible. That's that's hum- humanizing. So that was one good thing the movie did. Yeah. Yeah, and if you compare – one of the interesting contrasts, as long as we're still on the subject of dads real fast, uh, if you're thinking about uh, – and I, I, I was pausing for a second because I wanted to see what – the and I remember what the name of the actor was who played uh, uh, his father, like his adopted father, Kent, in the 1978 Superman the movie. Uh, Glenn right? Ford. Glenn Ford. Okay, so Glenn, Glenn Ford plays a uh, and Glenn Ford, of course, famous character actor, right? Plays a a, a Pa Kent, right? Like uh, whatever his name is, um, is uh, Pa uh, Kent. John, That's what he's called. John, John Kent. John, yeah, yeah. Plays him who is is almost as perfect, right, as a father figure <laughs> could be, right? Like the yes. idea. Often Superman is portrayed as having uh, really sort of perfect down home American parents who are just 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 paragons they're like steinbeck characters basically right but but the good ones you know like steinbeck characters has like he has the good ones and he has the horribly flawed characters but they're like sort of real salt of the earth people uh and then and then superman of course comes from this this planet of like really paragon of futuristic society and his father is this luminary of this highly advanced civilization and it's the tension between the two things that sort of generates the the imperfection and awkwardness in the clark and superman uh dichotomy but in this movie Pa Kent is really screwed up in a lot of ways. Like, he's not a, a paragon of anything. He doesn't have the same quiet strength that Glenn Ford's character does. I mean, Kevin Costner communicates a, a certain amount of graceful, quiet strength in his character, I think, to his credit, right, that, that does sort of carry through and make sense and inform the sort of Kansas side of Superman. But he isn't, you know, a, a sort of uh, golden age of, of Hollywood, you know, magic time, you know, hay bale hauling father, right? Yes, he's not, he's not perfect. Exactly, which I think enriches the part of Superman that needs to exist in order for there to be interesting stories to tell about him, uh, I, th- I think, I suspect. Uh, and certainly his Kryptonian father is even less perfect. I don't know, what did you guys, who did you guys think was the worst father? The, uh, I guess not, not worse. Did anyone else think that Jor-El was like a huge hypocrite whose plan like didn't really make all that much sense? Um, or did, was that just me? 
No, yeah, uh, I, like, I agree that there were some there were some flaws in the conception of the uh, not only of the child, the first in Krypton's history and centuries, but uh, but also of the plan. Yeah, do you do you think do you think Lara was was down for all that ahead of time? Like, you know, this is going to be the first natural birth in centuries. Oh, okay, nine months later. By the way, this is going to be a really painful delivery. Like, <laughs> no one no one's done this in over a in over a couple hundred years, so we don't have a lot of like medical documentation or trained personnel or like subjective experience or oral tradition on what exactly is going to happen when this baby comes out of you. So <laughs> yeah, we, we've got, we've got, the, we've got the flying needle, needle metal robot. Uh, we've got the flying robot that knows our name. That, uh, and which looks she's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That can see inside you just like, uh, just like, uh, Cal can see inside, uh, of people. And is it, I mean, I always said Kal-El, right? I, I guess Cal makes him sound like, uh, I don't know, Cal Worthington, Los Angeles used car king. Um, <laughs> or, you know, right. Like a uh, more relatable Cal, uh, Cal-El. It, oh, it, yeah. makes him, it makes him sound like a native of Kansas. Yeah. Like, Cal is the guy who works at the, at the dry feed, whereas Cal is an alien conqueror come to subdue us. Um, right. I mean, it comes from Hebrew, so... I mean, I don't think the Cal part doesn't, but the L part does. Yes. Uh, so, so that's generally... I think that's often why we pronounce it Cal rather than Cal. I think, although I wouldn't know necessarily off the top of my head how to pronounce that in Hebrew. Um, uh, let's talk about his, his powers... Um, his super his superpowers they're they're kind of science they're a little more scientific right in this one than than maybe in the the Christopher Reeve one where like i don't know it's it's the power of flight is more like a power of bounding right at first or is it just that he doesn't learn to fly he doesn't learn how to to actually levitate cuz he levitate he levitates later but it seems like it seems like uh laser beam eyes are the uh are the most kind of otherworldly um uh, power other than that he's just really strong well, I mean, the, the jumping is fan service, I think, to the Golden Age Superman who didn't fly. Right. And who just leapt from place to place, right, sort of like the Hulk does. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's always had the heat vision, right, like the, the laser eyes. He didn't use his super breath at all in this movie, which is a pretty trademark power. Um, but none of the more exotic Superman powers arrived here where he can, like, play, like, advanced techno-gymnastic martial arts with his brain, like, <laughs> like where he can, like, turn into a beam of pure energy or any of the other nonsense that they've come up with at times when it's been necessary. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're, so, but you're saying the powers are more, because he doesn't go around, well, because when he flew around the globe in reverse time in the old Superman movie, that didn't make any sense even at the time, yeah. I think, right? Like, that was just silly. But it's like, oh, well, he's Superman and he can do whatever he needs to do in order to, to finish the story. That's like, yeah, that was, a, that was a little more fantastical, right? Like, and yeah, spoke yeah. to a different, I don't know, spoke to a different time, I guess. A simpler time, uh, maybe a better time when we were willing to accept things sort of from our entertainment and we didn't have to go back to the, like, uh, you know, to the history of the, the seven great houses on... Uh, Right on Krypton, and and understand that you know the Lannisters led by 
you know, led by Zod, were mounting. A, <laughs> <laughs> well, at the same time, it's also it's also a time when fewer things had been tried, and so there was a lot more space to explore. And perhaps I still don't necessarily think. I think that might be some rose-colored glasses. If you're remembering, like the way the superpowers are communicated in the early Superman movies as really great cinematic storytelling. Like, there's like the one scene with the helicopter in the first one, right? And other than that, there's really very little that's impressive. Um, I, I mean, I guess the, the flying around the, the globe backwards, that just seem, always seemed kind of dumb to me. I don't know. I don't want to get bogged down in negativity or whatever about, about everything previously. Um, so what you said, I guess the biggest change is, I mean, it seemed really similar to me. The biggest change is that Superman's powers are neutralized by something in the air rather than in Superman 2, they're neutralized by uh, red light, right, by the red sun of Krypton. Or, or, by, or, by, or by Kryptonite. I thought, that, I thought that was this movie's way of, of lampshading Kryptonite as right. being his weakness. It's like just some part of essential Kryptonian mysticism. Oh, I gotcha. Oh, so there might be some sort of Kryptonite in the atmosphere or something like that. Yeah, or there's Kryptonite in the, the ship or something like that. Though you, uh, I guess there would be Kryptonite in his ship as well, if that were the case. Gotcha. But yeah, his other weakness is the red sun of Krypton, right? Which is um, used in the first appearance of General Zod back in the day. I mean, can we, can we talk a little bit more about Jor-El? I mean, I really wanted to talk a little bit about... No, please, I, did, I didn't yeah. need to hijack us from that. Okay, so, so Jor-El, I, mean, I don't want to bash him necessarily for, for being a hypocrite, but I want to sort of outline the conflict between Jor-El and Zod. Right, because I feel like in understanding it, it's pretty subtle. Which is that Jor-El and Zod have both agreed upon the conclusion that the mining of the core of Krypton is going to cause the planet to implode, explode, whatever. Everybody is going to die. Um, both of them have developed this sort of like, let's get a small subset of the Kryptonians who are currently alive, and let's like get them out of here so that they can go live somewhere else. Jor-El. Uh, or Cal, uh, and General Zod says, and you correct me if I get any of this wrong because it's really complicated, but General Zod seems to imply that he wants to eliminate the bloodlines of certain castes or certain families of Krypton that he personally does not like or that he holds responsible for uh, the, the, the failure of Krypton and the Krypton going to explode. Right, right. so his, his, his plan has two steps. One is eugenics and two is uh, evacuation. Right, right, right. And, and whereas Jor-El's plan kills everybody, <laughs> his son, everybody but his son dies, but the genetic codes of all of the future Kryptonians, who at this point are treated like people, despite the fact that they are genetic information, right? Like, I think that's sort of the, one of the really important kind of subtle differences, sort of subtle moral problems with the, the background of the story that was interesting, injects them into his son and then like saves his, after stealing all this stuff that belongs to sort of the, 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 the population as a whole, and sends his son to this new planet to be a kind of colonial god of that planet <laughs> show that planet how to live in the hopes that at some point someone will figure out how to extract the DNA of the future babies and then he can like repopulate from his own blood the, the rest of uh, this planet with like a, a sort of uh, race of god beings right and, and Zod is the bad guy Despite the fact that, <laughs> that, that, that fewer people die in Zod's plan, and oh, because Zod's original plan doesn't involve genociding Earth. He only decides to genocide Earth afterward when he's been trapped in the Phantom Zone. He's really pissed off. He's kind of had a bad couple hundred years or whatever, how much he spends in there, you know, what with the, the warping of time and all that stuff. I mean, is he really only in the Phantom Zone for like a couple weeks? 
because he says because they're released when the when the planet explodes, right? And they were sentenced to three hundred years, but the planet exploded like three weeks after the events of their imprisonment. So it's sort of it like was, a. It was tough to really tell how long it was, and and this was this is one comment I not to completely derail, but this is one comment I have at the movie. Like it was weird on transitions at some points, like. You know, there's Zod and his flunkies being sentenced to the Phantom Zone, and then the immediate next scene, like, no sense of time passing, is Lara staring out the, you know, the uh, three-season porch in her mountain laboratory uh, as Krypton explodes. And it's like, is this later that day? Is this a month later? Is this two years later? Uh, And this happens again later in the movie, where, you know, Clark, uh, where Superman... Uh, tells the general that, you know, yeah, I want to meet Zod, but on my terms. And it's an immediate smash cut to Superman and Lois in the middle of the desert, just somewhere, like waiting for Zod to pick them up, to give them a ride. So, like, I I, I suspect, well, I mean, I suspect there's going to be a three-hour director's cut that has a lot more of these transitions in it. But, yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of inconclusive sense of time. So, sorry, keep going. All right. Yeah, so, so, so I guess, so there's... So Zod, after his brief imprisonment, is really angry. Like, he also does spend like a couple decades looking for Superman, like searching these various barren worlds and whatnot. Um, but everything bad that happens on yeah, Earth well, is it is it explicitly called out as like thirty three years? Yeah, the age of yeah. Jesus. Right, right, yes. right. And we can get into that too. I mean, we we certainly have to get into that. I feel like people would be disappointed if we didn't because yeah. there's so much Jesus in this movie. Um, but I just want to put like Zod. I kind of identify with Zod. Like I kind of get the old Zod was this really campy character, right? The Zod from Superman Two, which I can't help but compare. Uh, I can't help but compare this movie to Superman Two because of the presence of Zod and certain other things that happen. But that Zod was just like he just like got off on the idea of being in charge of everyone. The whole kneel before Zod kind of played off of the sort of campy homoeroticism of Superman always wearing tights. And Zod has this weird Freddie Mercury thing going on, but he's like kind of like Grandpa Monster meets Freddie Mercury, and he's got these like you know he's got his Rocky Horror Picture Show gang, and they're going around making everybody kneel to them. Uh-huh. And, and like and, and Superman is like, all right, I've got a super. Man, these guys, right? And, uh, and Gene Hackman shows up and is like, "Hey, everybody, I'm in the movie for a little bit." And the whole thing is just like, it's just. I mean, Zod, you hate Zod. Zod is a, a villain, right? Um, and but Zod likes being a villain, right? And so there's this there's this whole kind of consensual aspect to the fight between Superman and Zod in Times Square or wherever it is that they fight, where kind of everyone wants to see it. Uh, and, and the the idea of innocent people being killed is kind of trivial. Whereas in this, like. Zod was in a really tough situation, right? And, and he, he was doing his best. And I, I really don't think that Zod's coup is the worst thing that happens to Krypton over the course of the beginning. Presumably, like, Krypton Halliburton or whoever is drilling into, like, the... Uh, into the core of Krypton to provide for its energy needs are the real villains of Krypton. And Zod is is merely like a a failure of the political system to uh, deal with these kind of economic realities of the business side of Krypton, right? Like, there's a failure in the relationship of the regulatory bodies and, like, the regulated. And so you have well, this military strongman come to power. Anyway, continue. Go yeah, ahead. It's, it's an interesting... I, I, liked, I liked the time we spent on Krypton at the beginning of the movie because you got a very clear sense in a very short period of time of this ancient esoteric civilization that had grown so, you know, so aged as to reach this supreme level of decadence that we could barely conceive. Like, these are people who are so enamored with ritual and tradition and and caste system that they find the time for a trial when their plan is going to explode in, like, weeks. It's like, you know, (laughs) their, their, their priority is not evacuation or, you know, 
saving saving the rest of the species or any other sort of contingencies. Like, no, 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 let's take the time and do this right. Let's observe the ancient forms and send this guy into space for 300 cycles, even though this planet has maybe, you know, five days left. Uh, let's, let's, let's make sure all the proper forms are filled out and checked off. Yeah, and, I, I, yeah go ahead. And yeah, and, and, the, and the weird structures and the... the and the the civilization and the weird flying beast that we got introduced to for like 90 seconds and there it was and like hey there's a thing i wonder what it's like riding these things i wonder how hard they're attained and like oh we only get that for a bit because you know this is a planet with a rich history that's being destroyed through its own uh, through its own hubris so i thought that was neat we can't yeah. you know, we already had a taming the flying beast scene in avatar we can't show that kind of thing again right <laughs> There's a there's a there's a deleted scene of Russell Crowe having sex with that monster with his hair. Uh, I also, but I just reinforce what John said. I loved how the production design, the art direction of Krypton was all based on fungus, right? It's like all like mushrooms. There's, it seemed like there were a lot of like mushrooms and fungal growths and barnacles and other sorts of like. Uh, those signs of biological uh, organisms were the representation for a lot of the Kryptonian architecture, the Kryptonian spacecrafts, right? They all looked like something that grows in the night, that sort of gloms on to another living being, right? Like, like parasitic and or fungal and or uh, something like that. And I thought that that kind of communicated what a decadent uh, and, and what a decaying culture it was. Also associated with, with kind of like moisture and being like uncomfortably moist. <laughs> yeah, the whole movie was made was terribly uncomfortably moist. I think for everyone in the audience. <laughs> but the, I mean, I, I not to take us down a rat hole, but I thought there were there were a couple of distinct uh, Kryptonian aesthetics, right? And and yeah, they all kind of shared they all kind of shared the um, what the the feature of being out of the natural world and especially out of like creepy crawly things or kind of gross things in the natural world. But like the, the underwater matrix pods with the babies in them, right. Was one, uh, the, uh, the, um, the what the uh, remember those uh, what were they called those screens that had a bunch of pins in them and you would stick your hand up through uh, in in the pins and the impression of your hand would be pushed up into the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Into I, the, I know what you mean I know what you mean the, I forget those, the, uh, someone's yeah. gonna well actually me in the comments I, but I would be glad to, I would be glad to be well actually and to learn what those are that's how those uh, oh I hear the the clicks of Google starting already uh, <laughs> yes. that's how the that's how the um, the grabby arms of the drilling platform. Uh, at the end of the movie, right? Like, go out. I mean, that, that was also the UI for all their machines, like right. those floating, those floating helper robots, right? And that's how the that's how the like uh, pictographic history of Krypton uh, was communicated from Jor El to uh, Kal El. Uh, yeah. Right in the in the thing like that's so that's you know that's yet another one the like the ball bearings the uh, you know many ball bearings thing then there were like the spider uh, the spider things uh, which were the the ships that had like three legs and then so the, impre- the impression I got was that Krypton as a planet I mean we don't see much of it when it's not exploding but it looked very you know rocky and volcanic and inhospitable so there were all these organic so the organic growths on it were were artificial were technological and i i I suppose might be an interesting set design if deliberate an interesting sort of art design contrast to earth which is very organic and lush and green and blue by way of comparison and as a result our technology our design our architecture feels very square and boxy and rounded corners in other words deliberately 
adhering to platonic solids and geometric forms rather than krypton, which already is sort of a platonic solid in itself. It's very square and boxy and harsh. So their technology, what, what they impose on the world, what they introduce through artifice, is going to feel sort of like organic and weird and random and, and fungal, as it were. Sure. I th- but I think beyond that, that makes sense diegetically. And I think beyond that, um, uh, the last one, the, the like the underwater baby pods, the uh, weird reptilian tentacles made out of ball bearings, the, um, you know, uh, the spider stuff. And then finally, the like the lizard, the lizard armor, which had like scales or, or mm-hmm. you know, plates or something like that. This this was all these things are all references to like non non primate kind of non mammalian uh, mm. kinds of, uh, you know, kinds of animals on Earth and are meant to, uh, meant to sort of otherize the, the Kryptonians. Yeah. But my point was, it was not like, it was not Star Trek The Next Generation where there is clearly one, like, governing aesthetic and it goes to the, <laughs> it goes to the shape of the consoles and the, like, the rounded balustrade behind the, the bridge to the, like, the curvy things in the L-Cars interface to the fact that the turbo lift is a circle, right? Like, <laughs> it's all, yeah. it's all of a piece. There were, se- there were several. It was a kind of heterogeneous system of, of, I don't know, of, of art design, I guess. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see because Bra- they, they've set down how Brainiac will look probably when Brainiac eventually shows up, right? Is that Brainiac will be one of those pin dealies with the ball bearings and it'll be shooting the tentacle arms and things like that. Right. Um, at least that seems like the conjecture to draw from the situation here. Um, although, I have to, you know what? Honestly, like, I don't know that Brainiac is going to be in a future Superman movie, but I have faith. <laughs> that there's your segue people there's your segue sometimes you have to take a leap of faith speaking yeah. speaking of faith <laughs> uh wow what was with the two shot of of superman and jesus in the background right yeah well i mean what was with it obviously it was it was deliberate right like it's it's obvious uh, well, not obvious. I guess it's not obvious. It's layered because Superman is sort of in that scene being challenged uh, with in, with the a personal virtue of faith in a very specific sort of way. Um, because it's not just Superman is Jesus because he goes out there and he suffers and dies and we're redeemed by his suffering and his dying. And he's also not just Jesus because it's like he sacrifices his old identity, his old self, to be sort of reborn as a new self and kind of like a born-again Christian kind of attitude, right? No, like he's, he's Jesus because he gets all like, you're not my real dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you have me as a father, but you also have another father, right, who is, out, who is beyond us, and he named you something, and he sent you here for a special purpose, right? Like, these things are all very, very Jesus-y. Um, and I thought it was interesting, in particular, because it's not just that. It's not just, like, old man in the sea kind of Jesus imagery, where it's like, oh, he's suffering. Oh, he's Jesus. Um, but the, when he asks the priest um, about... Uh, about how to handle the situation with sending himself in. And the priest says that he needs to take a leap of faith and look to trust humanity, right? Uh, and then there's kind of a throwaway line, which I thought was kind of, I mean, I didn't, I didn't support the dichotomy that it was setting up from an ideological standpoint, but I felt like it was there kind of as a, as a dog whistle, which is when, uh, you know, Ilsa, harem girl of the, of the kryptonite people or whatever her name was, like the <laughs> The severe Germanic lady, uh, the sort of evil Zod Trinity, who is coming after, not, not Trinity in a Christian sense, in a Matrix sense, who is coming after <laughs> Superman, said that they represented evolution, right? And that evolution always wins, right? Which is, which is yeah. dumb, because evolution, <laughs> wins, 
evolution wins by by definition, right? Like the thing that wins is the is evolution, right? It's not like evolution defeats something else. Yeah, it's it's not. You can you can't say evolution wins any more than you can say the game clock wins. Like when the clock expires, the game is over. That doesn't mean the clock wins. You know, yeah. evolution in the sense is the clock. And it also yeah, it also doesn't mean that the clock has decided who the victor of the game is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the John Madadinian fallacy, which is. Why you win a football game is by scoring more points than the other football team. <laughs> Are you saying that that's not how you win a football game? <laughs> no, I'm not saying, not saying it's wrong. <laughs> but but I think the main thing is that, that Superman is being identified with faith, right, in, the, in this story. But not just a faith in, like, an otherworldly provenance, like a faith that Russell Crowe is out there guiding your every move, right? Like a faith, it also a faith in the sense of not being certain that the thing that you're going to do is going to work out and having pretty good reason to believe that it won't, but at the same time, having a sort of quality of character where you aspire to push the limits of what you think is possible and to do it anyway, right? And this is a way in which Superman's kind of physical strength is combined with his sort of social conservatism, Right, because he because super because the way that you get physically stronger is you have faith that you will get physically stronger, and you challenge yourself to do things that you don't think that you can do, right? And then gradually you become stronger, and that's kind of a metaphor uh, in this case for also uh, a way of looking at the world, a way of predisposing yourself towards the challenges that you encounter in life, which is then in turn connected with a lot of Christian imagery. I mean, I know John, you probably have a lot of strong feelings about about this because I know we were talking a little bit about it on the chat channel. Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. So, I mean, there's there's the evolution point which you bring up, and there's the point which which rather brought up, which I or, or it was either rather or you, I forget, uh, which brought up which I hadn't thought about up to this point, but that uh, <coughs> the idea that the you know the genetic information of the future Kryptonian generations that's embedded in Clark's cells has the same moral standing as actual living Kryptonians. That in other oh, words, you know yeah. that unborn life which doesn't even have consciousness yet is to be is to be given the same consideration as actual you know living beings which it's, it's almost not even that i mean it's almost a step removed still from that which is that it's the kind of the potential it's the plan by which those unborn lives could come to be unborn lives even right it's, yeah yeah you know, it's more like drawing it's like more like drawing a hypothetical family tree starting from yourself right and then you know and then giving those things the status well, of yeah you know. it's abrahamic right it's number of the stars sure. is what it is where it's like yeah. look out and see the number of the stars and those will be the number of your descendants like superman like you know the stars are within you right like the whole future is within you it's like killing superman is doing a billion abortions at the same time <laughs> which is pretty bad uh yeah. not something that you should probably do general zod what are you thinking just punching him like that jeez well, i guess they can take it out of him when he's dead um, well, I mean, and 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 Zod Zod does yell at one point when the you know the the nascent child is being lifted up in a beam of light to be taken away from Krypton, abort the launch. Which I mean is launch terminology, but at the same time, it did kind of strike me like, hmm, where this is the this is the this is the newly born Jesus analogy we're talking about here, and we are kind of getting weirdly religious. So I don't know, maybe I'm just on the lookout for religious imagery because it is Jesus the movie, but. Uh, but yeah, odd word choice. Well, which is interesting because the Superman story is not like the that's sort of originally conceived, conceived waka waka, um, is not Jesus the movie, but Moses the movie. Yes, right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because you know Superman was created, I believe, by two Jewish dudes, right? And is yes. given this Jew- Jewish name, Kal- this Jewish derived name, Kalel, his Hebrew derived name, and that he's like the baby in the bulrushes that is sent to a strange land, and then like liberates those people, presumably from things that aim to hurt them or limit their ability to actualize their potential. Takes them to a promised land. Yeah, right? and and that's and a uh, yeah. Yeah, it's that, and it's also, you know, partly the American story as told by, you know, the children of immigrants, and that, you know, here's this guy coming from a foreign land, but he's he's born in the heartland of America, so he, he naturalizes and he comes to take on American values. So, which is another interesting point about the whole nature versus nurture debate, if we want to get into that, in that, you know, on, on the one hand, as we've discussed before, it can be tough to sympathize with or find entertaining Superman in that he's this immortal god being who can't be threatened by conventional means. But on the other hand, like it, it, there is, like it, it, the the morality of Superman matters matters more than we perhaps think it does because, and as this movie makes very clear, you know, Kal El raised on Krypton could have essentially turned into General Zod. Like, someone from Krypton with a Kryptonian upbringing shows up on Earth and is like, ooh, here's some people I can kick around, snap the necks of, or, you know, genocide in order to repopulate my planet. Someone from Krypton with a Earth upbringing, with a human upbringing, and more specifically a, like, middle American, reasonably, like, red state-ish, but with that sort of, you know, socially liberal background that comes from particular religion-slash-working-class upbringing, that whole melange, if you will. Uh, Someone from Krypton with that upbringing decides, no, the human race is worth saving, even though none of them are like me, even though I may never be able to have a normal relationship with any of them, even though they were trying to shoot me not too long ago, etc. Yeah, and I think think one of the interesting questions um, that the movie kind of raises... And then kind of answers through symbolism, I felt, was like, what does humanity need to be saved from exactly? Right? On the surface level, the thing that humanity needs to be saved from is the plot of this movie. Right? It's like uh, the the events that happen on Krypton uh, are the cause of the huge, huge majority of the deaths and pain and suffering of the people, right, that happens on Earth. It's like Superman's arrival on Earth is a huge net negative for the people like, <laughs> so far. There's like yes. a couple hundred people that Superman manages to save prior to the arrival of General Zod, at which point things get a heck of a lot worse. Although I thought it was really interesting um, how, do you, how do you raise the stakes? Because it's like, well, it seems to me like one of the mission statements of this movie was that we need to set up Superman alongside the Avengers, right? As sort of like a DC counterweight to what's happening in the Avengers franchise. And we need to set apart, well, what happens in the Superman side of the movie? Superman gets in the hugest fights. He takes on like the biggest fights. He's the one who just, you know, the, the many, many, many skyscrapers are literally pounded to dust. But how about how about the fact that he fought against 9-11 and the tsunami at the same time, right? That were happening <laughs> on opposite sides of the world, right? Like, how many of, like, the great real-life uh, tragedies and disasters and catastrophes, you know, that if, that if we all remember from the past, like, 20 years, you know, what ha- happened in this movie? Like, how, how direct were the September 11th references, and, like, were they kind of difficult to watch? Did you, I found it really difficult to watch when the spaceship was coming down next 
to the fisherman in the Indian Ocean, right? Like, who's probably somewhere in Malaysia, right? And who is, like, one of the 125,000 people who died in, like, the worst disaster in any of our lifetimes or our parents' lifetimes or anything like that, right? Like, in terms of natural disasters. You know, like, how, yeah. how horrifying was that? And this is the thing that Superman is fighting against, symbolically, right? Is to save us from these things. Yeah, um, I, I had a similarly hard time with the... Uh, with the with the buildings collapsing in in Metropolis, because you know, the, and and this is this is one of the other things the film did really well, and part of why I give the the Act Three CGI a bit of a break. So, I mean, part of part of the issue with this is, of course, you know, it's very, like it being a Zack Snyder film; it's very CGI heavy. So there are points in some of the latter fights where it's it's impossible to tell what exactly is happening at any given time. Like somebody is punching something, and stuff is exploding in a place, and who knows. Uh, and, you know, in the the Michael Bay, uh, you know, slash Independence Day slash Day After Tomorrow era, you know, the, the tendency is always to use to use CGI to create these huge spectacles of cities being destroyed. And it feels very blank and impersonal. And while I'm thinking about this, it then cuts to this scene of one of the Daily Planet interns being, you know, pinned in by this piece of rubble. And... You know, Perry White making the the very tough choice to to stay with her, even as it doesn't appear she can get away. And that other staffer, whose name I don't remember, you know, running and finding a stop sign to try and pry the rubble open. So it, instead of instead of making the destruction of Metropolis being about the destruction of a city, which is easy enough to render in CGI, and so it sort of lost its impact. It's about the it's about these three people, these three people who we've met before and who we kind of like at this point. It's like. It doesn't matter if, you know, thousands of other people die. If these three people die, that's a tragedy because yeah. the audience is at that So that's, that's good filmmaking right there. That, that's making the, the hugely destructive very personal. I really love that scene. Uh, that scene with Lawrence Fishburne and the guy from House of Cards trying to pry the woman out from under the rebar. Like, yeah. and, 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 the, and the things, the look on Lawrence Fishburne's face when you realize that he decided to stay here with that woman so that she didn't have to die alone. Yeah. Right? And like the sort of the look of just sort of total connection and, and sympathy and empathy for the situation and the human condition that was there. That was like a really deep and intense way of humanizing the story. It was. Uh, it was really I, good. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was pretty tremendous, I thought. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that it's it's amazing that this movie didn't take any heat from the the horrible tornado death of Kevin Cosner, given the recent horrible tornado deaths that have happened. Because this is not a movie. Because so many times these days, right, any movie that tries to show something that then like resembles too closely this something that happens in real life, you know, the movie for some reason takes heat. Right, it's like, oh, this is unacceptable to show in a movie a thing that actually happened, right? Because yeah. these movies are supposed to be fantasies, and this is often because if the movie did it beforehand, I mean, what's a good example? Um, well, gosh, when there was the big, there was usually it's like there was after a big the, shooting. Well, after the Aurora shooting, a, a scene was taken out of a gangster movie that involved shooting up a, a, a movie theater, movie theater, for example, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and I guess I guess they took a scene out of this original Spider-Man movie where the, the helicopter was caught in a web between the twin towers, um, and I guess I can understand that happening, but like. The, the sort of becoming accustomed to that made the choices that this movie did made to show the really hard side of human suffering during catastrophes that are readily identifiable from our own memory. Like, that made it feel really ballsy to me and, like, really intense. And I guess the movie was really serious, which is probably why it gets away with it, I suppose. Yeah, but, the, um, well, it had, had, you mean sort of had a solemn tone, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, the movie, the movie didn't laugh much at all. 
right? Like the movie was very much like you need this is a this is a Bible story, right? Like, <laughs> it starts. How many Superman movies? How many superhero movies that you've seen start with an actual live birth? Right, like it's like Daredevil didn't start that way. <laughs> you know, Daredevil isn't like you know crying Ben Affleck covered in like you know afterbirth being held in the hands of whoever would play Ben Affleck's dad in that movie. Probably Joe Mantegna. I don't know. But, yeah. Oh no, somebody did play uh, Daredevil's dad in that movie, and now I have yeah. to go look it up. The, there aren't there aren't a lot of funny scenes, and <clears throat> I think part of it is, and I, I realize this only now in retrospect, is. The biggest opportunity for humor in any given Superman story is Clark Kent trying to act like a normal human being, or mm. trying to or trying to interact with normal humans. So we get a little bit of that in the you know in the scenes of Superman surrendering, where you know he's got his he's got the cuffs on and you know he and Lois are talking. There's sort of like the, that smirking like look, but not real comment on the cuffs. And then when he's talking to the generals, he just like pops the cuffs as if they're nothing. It's like all right, listen. So th- those those were funny, for instance, or. You know, going back to the original Richard Donner films, you know, scenes of Clark Kent trying to be a, you know, fumble finger, fumble fingered, mild mannered guy, just sort of nerding his way around the place, when in reality we know he can, you know, bend ocean liners in half. Uh, those, those are funny. But there weren't a lot of those scenes in the movie, because all the times when he's Clark Kent, he's still that very earnest, questing Clark Kent, who's, you know, going north on some, you know, un, undriven impulse, trying to find. I don't know. Do we know why he was heading north necessarily? Because his his lines seem to be heading mostly north. And I think in the first movie, in 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 the Richard Donner Superman, it was it was for a particular reason. Like he was compelled to go north for some reason. That's because that's where the Fortress of Solitude was. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, I don't know how he ended up in this you know secure government facility. Which it's kind of odd that they'd let a guy with apparently a forged background uh, do do even manual labor on a secure government facility where a UFO has possibly landed. But uh, I mean, it's a big institution, and they can't check everybody. And if they didn't if they didn't let undocumented immigrants work in you know work in manual labor, how would they get anything done? But uh, yeah. Oh, but, by the way, Daredevil's father in the movie Daredevil with Ben Affleck is played by character actor David Keith. Uh, who you may know as uh, a guy from the reboot reboot of Hawaii Five O. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. Uh, he's also in CSI Miami. He's in a bunch of stuff. So he's fair a enough. But yeah, he, yeah he's yeah. A, he's an he's an actor who works, and so we raise our class. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So yeah, so Superman. So this was an interesting choice that I feel like really liberates the Superman character because we we have talked a bunch about the challenges of making a Superman movie, and we've talked about it on the past in the show. We've talked about it on the site a bunch, right? And it was that Superman the the nature of Superman's secret identity is totally changed. In this franchise, I think we can. Lois Lane already knows who Superman is. Like we're supposed to know that, right, from the pre-credit scene, that like Lois Lane recognizes Clark Kent when he shows up at the office, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah okay. Like they're not going to pretend like she can't see who it is behind <laughs> the glasses, because uh, that would just be absurd. Uh, but but there, Superman doesn't necessarily live a secret identity in the sense of he has one person that he is to the rest of the world, and then he has one person that he sort of is to himself. He has a secret identity in the sense that, like, he is a recluse. Right? He is a private person. And to any extent that you will attempt to get to know him, he will be difficult to get to know. And it was not just because 
it's not just for practical reasons. It's not just because he wants to protect the people that are close to him. It's also because of the way that he was brought up and the way that he, even the way he came to learn about himself and his powers, right? They all sort of pushed him in this direction of, of being reclusive. Uh, it's almost like Man of Steel for me, like the title of the movie, Man of Steel, spoke to the hard exterior of the, of the Kal-El Clark Kent character. The fact that he had this, this really thick layer that he imp- imposed between himself and the world around him uh, that was both a product of his isolation as a child right, and also of the, um, of the various uh, kind of overarching ego-informing statements that were made by his father and his, his, both his two fathers, right? Like, these are the things that you need to do, right? Like, <laughs> these are the things that I'm putting on top of you, right? And these are the things that are unwavering. These are the things that will be constant through your life, right? right. And so steel is both his sort of emotional resilience. Not even, I'm not even going to say resilience because it's not like he, it's not necessarily that he can cope with bad things happening. It's that his resistance, right? His, like, his ability to stand apart from events that are happening to him. His, well, his um, resistance and his ability to, to summon up more energy from within. Like, a lot, of, a lot of Superman's problems he defeats by yelling. Like, he's being pushed back by something, and then he just yells, and he finds the strength to push a little harder and, and, and topple it. Like, whether it's, whether it's a gravity beam that's apparently powerful enough to reach the Earth's core, or whether it's a toppling superstructure on a rig, or whether it's just general zod's neck spoiler alert uh he 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 overcomes it with like a deep primal yell so it's i mean some of it is touching so yeah like he he has this this source of energy within him this source of you know morality and conscience and you know he has to safeguard it because if he if he spends all his moral energy in trying to deal with uh, a lot of a lot of moral dilemmas, a lot of you know minor, trivial, mundane stuff like oh, how much do I tip the Chinese delivery guy, or oh, how much do I, you know, how much do I give to UNICEF this year? If he if he wastes his energy on that, he's not going to have anything in the tank for you know when Brainiac shows up. Yeah, but at the same time, one of the most supermanish things that he does in the whole movie is when the guy in the bar throws the beer on top of him, and he just walks away. Right, yes. like, like 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 that was a really great Superman moment to me. And I almost felt like him destroying the truck, that was actually funny. That was like probably this, one of the silliest moments in the movie. When <laughs> yes. he goes out and, and the truck has been speared by like six different telephone poles. Yeah. Right? And like, <laughs> that, that, that seemed way out of character well, for well, the yeah, Superman. But it's, uh, sure, right, right. But it doesn't matter. I mean, obviously it's like, make sure you always keep your identity a secret, even to the point of letting your father die. But if you need to play a prank on someone, like, <laughs> like, um... <laughs> But no, but I mean, like, that scene was over when he walked out of the bar, and then that was just sort of a stinger punchline. But just, like, having the quality of character that you have this tremendous bulwark against your own aggression, against really the sort of response, response to your own kind of primal needs. And then that's the thing with Superman, right, is that, like, his, his inner fury is buried, like, so deep down that when he is screaming, it's not just that he's summoning strength, it's also a signal to the audience that, like, things are really, really, really serious. Because yeah. Superman really doesn't like screaming. Like, he really prefers <laughs> to see him. Like, like, he really doesn't. He really wants to stay quiet like he's he's like the kind of guy you know you meet him on craigslist and he's like i'm just looking for a place where i can stay and not really have a lot of trouble (laughs) like uh you know i don't really come out go out much you know i just sort of hang out i don't i don't eat i don't eat i just need to sit on the roof for you know a couple minutes a day and you know soak up sunlight (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, man. And how about him, like, reaching toward the sun as sort of another uh, reference to these sorts of uh, Abrahamic myths? And, uh, well, myths isn't the right word for it, but, like, like um, but you know what I mean? Like, the, um, the, the various tropes, the various motifs, uh, rather than sort of the storylines, right? Like, uh, the idea that Superman is connected to all these religious figures, and this idea of looking directly into the sun uh, is, is sort of, I mean, that's Wallace Stevens, right? And that's, that's also in a lot of kind of, you know, the Egyptian sun god stuff. It also feeds into the way that monotheism is understood and practiced. Well, with, right? with, like, with Zod, then, you have, you have the, the Abrahamic, or I guess, uh, Deuter, Deuteronomic, Talmudic, whoever, uh, the, the Old yeah. Testament figure of Saul, who, you know, at one point was was chosen by God and, you know, ruled the tribe and, you know, seemed to have the tribe's best interests at heart. But, you know, after a while, he's led a little too long and along comes this new king. And at first, Saul is like, oh, okay, yeah, I can I can totally be down with the new king. Absolutely. He's, you know, chosen of the tribe. I'm chosen the tribe. Let's get on with it. You know, let's let's be cool. And then it's clear that God's plan, you know, favors the new king rather than the old king. So at that point, Saul and David become enemies. Right. So, that's, that's really insightful. That, that, that totally is the kind of the kind of way that I identified with Zod. Yeah, totally, totally. Cause, yeah, because he shows up and at first he's like, hey, Kal-El, good to meet you. So you're down with the genocide, right? <laughs> and I was like, what? No, nobody told like, I was like, oh. I, mean, I mean, sort of. I mean, sort of. That's <laughs> like, no, yeah. that's going to make it awkward when I genocide the planet. <laughs> yeah, one would think that Zod might be willing to back down off his plan a little bit after he realizes how difficult it's going to be to execute. <laughs> but he's really pissed off at that point. He's really, he's like, he's beyond help in that sense. Uh, how, how about, can I just also say, how arrogant is it to, to say to someone, you know, on my home planet, this is the symbol for hope, and you're referring to your own last name? Right, like how how weird would it be if like if like if our my name were like we're like you know uh, Pete Optimism, and it's like <laughs> welcome to the Optimism Podcast with Pete Optimism, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like because because it's this idea that when he's when Superman says it in the in the uh, in the interrogation room, there's this sort of implication like oh so he's a symbol, right? He's ideological. It's like no, that's his last name. Like that's just his dad. Wait, right? that, like, wait uh, I got the I got the sense that that was actually like the the uh three dire wolves on a you know on a field you know of the that it wasn't actually that the the character was actually the like the ideogram for hope and that l was actually something else so that's how you spell l in kryptonese well, well, oh i mean it's yes. the it's the symbol of house l but yeah if john if john is if john's correct thing is i don't know off the top of my head but i do know it's the symbol of his house yeah yeah um, that is yeah. that is it it's it's the yeah, sim- similar to how Zod had some weird sort of like scythe kind yeah, of did you, thing. Yeah, did you notice his, the sickle? Yeah, on, <laughs> on his on his underoos. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, how about the platonics? Uh, the, I guess it's not just platonic. Like case systems do tend to boil down similarly from place to place, where it's like the warriors, the 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 philosopher kings, and the other sorts of slices. How about how uh, Superman is reading Plato at one point when he's getting bullied? Right. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Plato in this. There's a lot of like Neoplatonism and uh, and stuff like that, um, especially in the beards. A lot of beardage. <laughs> Superman's got the beard. Well, when Zod, him. when General Zod shows up again, you know he's grown a beard, which is a symbol that like you know stuff has just gotten real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's, he's sort of let he's sort of let his effete Kryptonian grooming go, and has become the sort of savage Shaggy, by which we mean very neatly trimmed goatee with a bit of gray in it. 
Uh, yeah. that, that's how we know he's gone, he's gone native. Uh, he's operating beyond the pale without any conventional sense of restraint. Termi- terminate Zod's position with extreme prejudice. Beards, uh, <laughs> so beards, can, beards can, are a trope of solemnity, I think, in this yeah. film, right? So if I, if, I can, if I can speak briefly of Jor-El's second life, because, uh, literally in this sense, because he does become sort of an online avatar, uh, <laughs> Because I, at first I was thinking, oh, you know, there's a lot being made of Russell Crowe for a role that only lasts for really, you know, 15 minutes tops. But no, he shows up repeatedly throughout the film and in many plot-derived ways. So I, I guess this is something Kryptonians are cool with because if I, I mean, if I died and if I, like, reemerged a second later and, and realized that, oh, okay, this isn't really me. This is my conscien- consciousness that has been uploaded to a computer uh, many, you know, many thousands of light years away and many decades later, uh, like my first reaction would be existential horror and then maybe trying to help out whoever it was had, had woken me. Uh, but Jor-El seemed pretty cool with it. Like as soon as you plug him in, it's like, oh, hi, Clark. Uh, yeah, you're, you're my son. Uh, you're on Earth. It's 30 years later. Let me bring you up to speed. Uh, everything's cool? Yeah? Uh, by the way, I'm dead. Uh, I'm a computer program. I'm not actually me. But let me let me advise you in the way that I would were I actually me, which I'm not because I'm dead. <laughs> so wait, are we to believe that the simulation of Jor-El has, is conscious and has Jor-El's mind in it in some way? Yeah, it, it's apparently a like almost complete uh, theory of mind, as it were. Like it's it's Jor-El. I guess you can completely syncretize a person, a Kryptonian's thought patterns into a memory stick, into a USB flash drive which Clark carries around his neck for his entire life until he finds a, a, a proper USB port to plug it into. Because, you know, they'd, they'd, upgra- they'd upgraded from USB 2.0 years ago, and it's like, you got to find some old tech. And, like, he, th- he thought he found something at a swap meet in Pasadena <laughs> once, but it turned out, like, no, you need to have the right driver installed. And, like, where, <laughs> where See how simple Terminator Salvation is? How simple it is, Terminator Salvation? <laughs> just change the shape of the darn thing, right? Like, just make it, like, just put a little symbol on it, and we'll totally buy it i don't By know way, apple moving, apple yeah. tried that with the last iphone right they, oh, they got all kinds of flack because the connector is different now by the way speaking of decisions that this movie made smarter than terminator salvation uh Overthinking it used Tamo Penicat was featured in this movie, oh i was so happy when he <laughs> yeah. popped up for about three seconds there yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Get, he's getting work as as <laughs> did what's his name from battlestar galactica who was uh who was the, I guess, resident seismologist at a, at Camp UFO up in the Arctic Circle? It's also <laughs> nice to see that Toby Ziegler is Toby Ziegler is working a little bit. Yeah, as Doctor Emil Ham. So speaking speaking of the iPhone, as as Doctor Emil Hamilton, his solution to the problem with the plug not working was to literally hold the device differently, i.e., rotate it about a quarter turn to the left, yeah. and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the plug works. So it's like. It's like with with the you know the iPhone model that came out a couple of years ago, where you know holding it wrong would cause the antenna to sh- to you know lose all signals. Like oh, just just rotate it a little. Yeah, <laughs> just jiggle it. What is the word for that? Like manual adjustment? Is that a, when you kick the computer and it suddenly starts working? Oh man, yeah, geez. Yeah, I mean, gosh, Superman. Oh man. <laughs> 
Well, can we can we zoom out a little bit now that we've sort of gone through some of this stuff and talk about um, talk about this film as a as a like a summer blockbuster and as an exemplar of the gritty reboot and as an as a uh, you know just as a an artistic artifact a little bit. I was I you know John saw John posted something to social networking earlier today that was like yeah well, this where, is- I, where I said like you know like it suffers the failings of all summer blockbusters right. in the twenty first century in that. It's a little too long. It is a little too much CGI. It has a Hans Zimmer soundtrack, uh, <laughs> but but that notwithstanding, it's it's still fun. It's still um, cool. Well, this I like. This was maybe it's because I saw it like uh, sitting in the fourth row. I like. I wanted to sit close. I've been sitting close to to movies recently to like really become absorbed in what happens. And maybe it's that the the all the handheld camera work through you know through that like long middle section made me a little nauseous. Maybe it's just that they had the volume up too high. But like by the end, I felt like uh, I'm not I'm not usually one to like plug my ears in a movie, but I felt like uh, the the soundtrack and the sounds and stuff like that. I was I was getting that sort of like being barraged and pummeled and sort of worked over feeling uh, that I get from a uh, uh, you know that I get from a Michael Bay movie. And you know for what it's worth, the first fifteen minutes, like though there was a lot of action, um, I didn't have that feeling. I mean, I felt it was like kinetic, but it was kinetic in a graceful way. And the, the you know, the avatar bit of like flying on the, the back of the dinosaur was you know, was was fun and was sort of balletic and was was exciting. Um, you know, the camera seemed a little a little less bouncy bouncy, uh, right? Like, and and I don't know, I, I sort of enjoyed that. And then we went into full on, full on barrage mode. I think that some of the construction of this movie and the jumping around associatively to flashbacks and stuff like that is uh is meant to distract you from or functions anyway to distract you from to from you know i don't know some of the some of the glaring questions that you might ask uh about the plot right like yeah, <laughs> yeah such as such as what exactly was Jorel's plan and did it succeed question mark yeah why why does the why does the the cutaway to the flashback about being bullied and knocked into the fence and like crushing the you know crushing the fence post in your hand and then having Kevin Costner come over and tell you good job for not decking that kid right like why is that in the Jesus scene and not in the bar scene where you get beer thrown on you right like what uh, you know like a couple things don't uh, I don't know construction wise didn't didn't make sense to me but it just I don't know it sort of felt overstuffed and it and it felt like rather than suffering from from uh, Lord of the Rings syndrome and having you know 12 endings it had 12 beginnings Right. And it had like 12 uh, different ways of establishing what what had happened. So several of which didn't happen until like halfway into the movie, uh, which was, you know, I don't know, troubling from a three. Well, you know, I mean, the the Bible has two different books of Genesis. (laughs) So, you know, there's there's more than one. There's more than one origin. Well, there are four. I mean, in the Bible, there are four. Right. There's like the J author, the the E author, the uh, priestly tradition and the one that I always forget. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so, so, but I, I don't know. I actually kind of liked the way that the movie was structured because I knew that regardless of how it happened, there were going to be action sequences at very predictable time intervals throughout the movie. And that, that can really make movies pretty dumb sometimes, right? With like really forced action sequences. I'm reminded, of course, of the classic Kevin Smith talking about the Superman movie that he was writing. Right, where like he went to go see uh, John Peters, the producer, and John Peters was like, Okay, I have Superman fight some polar bears. Like, polar bears, the most fearsome predator known to man. Have him fight some. Why would he fight some <laughs> polar bears? Well, he's in the Arctic, it's the beginning of the movie, we need some action. Like, have him fight some polar bears. Or a spider, like a giant spider. Right, and then the end of that, the end of the story is that, that you know, Tim Burton gets hired to do the project, Kevin Smith gets kicked off the project, and then John Peters makes Wild Wild West instead, and sure enough, there's like a big spider because he's like, <laughs> spiders. But the, the point is that this movie was going to have an action sequence every 10 minutes, <laughs> and I'm glad that instead of saying, hey, let's come up with some reason why Superman can get into trouble every 10 minutes, they were like, let's put all of the action sequences we want to have in one column, and then let's put all of the story elements in the other column, and then let's just do flashbacks and flash forwards so that the producers are happy with the intervals of the action sequences. Also so the audience gets to catch their breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they get there. So they don't start complaining because there's too much talking and not enough Superman, or too much well, Superman mean, and not enough talking. So to, be, to be fair, like if if every sequence that we saw in the flashbacks happened chronologically, like if those were set in chronological order, that'd have been like a, a hilarious forty five minutes of Kevin Costner showing up every once in a while, lecturing his son, and then disappearing <laughs> again. Like like every time Kevin Costner came on screen, it would be like. Well, you see, Timmy, this is how it is when a child's got superhuman powers and some <laughs> kids don't understand what he's doing. Maybe sometimes you gotta let him die in order to not get caught in the thing. I'm like that would have been, I would have been tearing out my eyes. Insufferable. At least this point, you could breathe a little. At this point, you you didn't roll your eyes every time you showed up. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, you may you may have anyway. I think the effect though is like one of those children's books where the pages are are divided into three, and you can flip up the different sections to create a, a creature that has like the head of a lion, the you know body of a caterpillar, and the the tail of a duck or something like that. <laughs> Superhero right there, <laughs> you know, right uh. where 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 you end up kind of going in circles, right? Like because the the effect of of the method of construction that that you're describing is that like okay exposition scene right like action scene uh flashback exposition action scene flashback exposition action scene flashback and and this was pretty pretty predictable throughout throughout the whole movies and like you don't get to you don't get to to like uh you don't get to skip the hard work of deciding what story you're going to tell by taking the pieces of all your of all the stories you're going to tell putting them in a blender and pretty much distributing them evenly throughout the two hours and 20 minutes of your film that's my point have you ever seen any one-man shows? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Pete, I've, I've, com- I've committed several one-man shows. <laughs> this was basically like Superman on Broadway. This was like Under the Cape, right? Like the Superman one-man show on Broadway, Man of Steel, right? Where it's like, when I was a kid, my father used to tell me about why I should let children die. And then it's like, and here's a story about how I saved an oil rig, right? Like, and you're like jumping around, and Suzanne Summers is there, and it's nuts. Man uh, of Steel, <laughs> they call me all the, the, the Man of Steel. <laughs> and rather, I, I I disagree ultimately because okay. there's no there's no one way that you have to structure the narrative. And given the burden of a Superman movie to 
make the most powerful person on earth, you know, make the man of tomorrow humane and believable and empathetic. Like I, I encourage like any form of narrative that's going to make that work. Like incidentally, like I think all three of us saw it today, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Like all three of us saw it today on Bloomsday. So, you know, if, if he wanted to, you know, do it on some sort of like you, James Joycean, like Ulysses stream of consciousness narrative, and somehow that made it work, I'd be all for it. <laughs> this movie took me 14 years to make. It's going to take you 14 years to watch. Super, 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 I said, super, I said, Superman, I said, Superman. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's better than like stately ripped uh uh whatever his name is uh i want to say chuck haverhill but that's probably somebody totally unrelated what is the name of the guy who played him um uh henry cavill henry cavill why did i say chuck haverhill is just the name of a town in massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) i mean you can well you can use you can use those initials all over the place like the hce like you know henry cavill Earthman, or house castle and environs or <laughs> etc oh that, that's finnegan's wake i'm sorry I'm so crossing, i will, crossing, I will the stream. I'm crossing the streams crossing the streams in so to put this in the context of other summer blockbusters i feel like it is worthwhile to mention that it considers character in a fundamentally different way i feel than the avengers movies like the Marvel aspect of the Marvel side of these movies cons- considers character. And then many movies consider character. I felt like this was, we've talked a lot about it being modeled on the old Testament and parts of the new Testament. Um, when you think about how they construct the characters in something like Iron Man, right? There are the points where Iron Man is being Iron Man. There are the points where Iron Man is making the decisions as to what he's going to do, and you're kind of watching him make the decisions. And there are way there are conversations that Iron Man has that sort of show the different aspects of his psychological personality and the reasons that he would do these things, right? I don't think any of the characters in this movie uh, are contemplating a decision and then have a conversation that sort of reveals their thought process. Right, like the sort of the classic scene. And again, I keep coming back to the scene where Superman goes to the priest and talks to him because he doesn't even stop, stay for the conversation. Right, he goes to the priest and he's like, "I'm thinking about this thing and I need advice." And the priest starts talking, and by the time the priest is talking, he's already made up his decision and he's gone. <laughs> right, and it's yeah. like it's like these are these are like heroic characters of an older model. You know, these are these are characters who exist in the sense, they are godlike in the sense that they are sort of forces towards the commission of certain acts in the world, right? And, and there is an aspect to which they don't have a sort of Shakespearean humanity, uh, right? And I feel like maybe that's a blessing in a Superman movie where giving him a really sort of... Uh, identifiable, funny, vulnerability, psycho, like Freudian psychological way of looking at his, his choices in life, like really clashes with the extremity of his capability and circumstances, right? And so like maybe he's much more like an Achilles figure, right, than like, a, uh, like an Indiana Jones. Sure, and that, that was actually like those moments of, of Shakespearean self-overhearing, right? Like when the guy says Superman and they kind of realize – uh, how ridiculous it sounds! Like that was an opportunity for humor in the movie. And when when um, oh, I I didn't catch the character's name, but I'm just going to call her uh, Captain Stupid Exposition, um, <laughs> who, who asks, you know, and of course it's a it's a woman, right? And of course she looks like she's 12 and yet is wearing two bars. Never mind. Um, when she had the one, I I mean the one who asks, what's, like, he's kind of hot. Yeah. What's terraforming? Well, yeah, he's kind of hot. And like what that what that does aside from like you know said 
te- feminism back another ten years is <laughs> is um, like say you know there's a ripped guy who's really good looking standing in a skin tight outfit in front of you like when when you acknowledge the reality the grandiosity of what's going on that that too is an opportunity for uh, for humor not just the you know not just the the truck right like that yeah. the truck wouldn't have been funny if he'd slashed the tires but uh yeah. <laughs> although if you watched him just, he, or if he just peed on it or something right i think i feel like if he, keyed, he just if he'd peed, peed a giant s, s in the snow around <laughs> if he keyed the superman symbol into the side of the car <laughs> um, but the thing is that in this movie they resist those moments right, right. whereas the moment where robert downey jr goes in front of the press conference and is like screw it i'm iron man yeah right like that's the same kind of moment but it's central to how those movies work right because those moments of humor that interrupt the the grandiosity not the grandiosity but the grandeur of the characters the glory of the characters right like those movements that that undermine it and allow us to laugh at it and identify with it or a big reason a big sort of occasion for the storytelling of those things like that's that's their core notion of what human beings are and this movie yeah. does not want to do that yeah, uh, which is i'm not saying it's bad but it's just a different style but it's not just it true is, of it superman is it yeah. is different i mean it the, there's a there's a quote i read on twitter uh, earlier this week, it's either by Ann Patchett or Anne Lamott. That's killing me. I can't distinguish between the two because they're very different writers. Uh, but uh, but she was saying Rice. that <laughs> probably she was Anne Rice. Uh, but she was saying that humor is just when someone tells you the truth much more quickly than you were prepared to hear it. Uh, and I, I think and I think when you're talking about moments of humor in these in these superhero movies, that that very much fits the bill because. The very notion of superhero movies is, is like, to some extent, it's inherently unrealistic. And we have to suspend our disbelief pretty heavily to believe things like to believe a man can fly, to believe, like, one person can hold up an oil rig without the entire oil rig just sort of buckling around him, no matter how strong he is. Or to believe, you know, in, like, supersonic-powered, you know, suits of armor with, you know, energy beams. And these moments of humor, you know, pull back the curtain. They tilt the lampshade a little and reveal like, yes, this is kind of ridiculous. It's kind of ridiculous that this guy, you know, this guy who's the only person who's ever been seen with a suit of armor could somehow pose as, you know, not being the person piloting it. And it's, it's sort of ridiculous that he could keep up this facade for as long as he did. And when he reveals that at the end of the press conference, that's, that's the humor. That's telling the truth of the situation just very suddenly, very surprising to us in that way. And so, Pete, to your point, this this is a movie that can't linger for too long in the elements of the real because it takes place, as you say, on such a super real, on such a super normal, supernatural uh, plane. Like the most the most real part of Clark Kent's existence is his is his job at the Daily Planet, and even that hinges on the fact that no one's going to recognize him because he's got these big goofy Buddy Holly glasses. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean. But I think that, I, I mean, really, Pete, what you said about it being sort of anti-Shakespearean in the sense of, like, not it, not participating in the kind of interiority and in the kind of psychologizing, right, that we come to yeah. expect, um, I, I think that's very interesting. And it's not confined just to Superman, right? Like, every, every, everyone is exactly, yeah. right? Like, Chris Maloney is like, you know, military honor machine, you know? And, <laughs> right, and uh, yeah. Harry Lennox is... 
uh, I don't know, uh, other military military practical machine, right? There's never a scene where, well, I mean, Lois Lane is the biggest example of it. Lois Lane is even more so like this than Superman is, because she just does so many things in the in the movie where she's very determined on exactly what she's going to do, and she's not even really going to discuss it with anyone. Uh, to the extent that she's discussing it with anyone, it's not, there's, interiority is a great word for it. She's not showing any of her interiority in the decisions that she's making. She's just negotiating for the resources and authority she needs to do the things that she knows that she wants to do right and like that's what makes her a good match for superman in this movie is that you know she also is this force right she is she is a she goes out there and she is she is godlike like achilles in the things that she's going to do she's going to show up a day early to the super secret military base with total certainty that she's not going to get herself in trouble or that she is she's going to be able to handle it right um I mean, if this were a Marvel side movie, there would have been a long, or maybe even any other superhero movie, she would have had a long conversation with one of her girlfriends about how she met this guy, right? And it's kind of weird because he's not from around here. I guess the Marvel <laughs> theater probably has that conversation in the first one. But there'd be some funny thing about the fact that she met this guy that she kind of has feelings for, but he's the subject of a story and she doesn't know how to deal with it. But this is not the movie where that happens. This is the movie where Lois Lane like goes to the war zone, right? And just like yeah, is where just Lois there. Lane is inexplicably on. Uh, uh, an airplane and like is like the technician who's going to drop the ordinance onto the you know yeah we're, we're, it's it's where character is revealed almost entirely through action like aside aside yeah. from that scene of of Clark you know commuting with the priest which since he's Jesus is essentially just him talking to himself and like bouncing ideas off a subordinate because you know he doesn't he doesn't have to confess anything. <laughs> the you know, the priest is the one with the direct line to Jesus, so he's clearly just, you know, he's, he's spitballing, he's brainstorming, yeah. he's thinking out loud. Uh, but other than that, there are very few scenes of, you know, character or morality being discussed. I mean, it's being preached at folks pretty often, but, you know, we know that General Zod is a take-charge kind of person who doesn't believe in the strictures of tradition, but values the bloodline of Krypton first and foremost, because we first see him when he shows up at a council meeting and shoots someone. Like, that's, right. that's how that aspect of his character is revealed. We know that Clark is not a guy who picks fights because he, you know, doesn't pick fights, but at the same time he's clearly internally tormented because he twists a, uh, twists a fence pole around. Or, you know, he's the kind of guy who saves you know, kids, even if they've been picking on him like three minutes earlier or things like that. So, you know, yeah. character is almost entirely revealed through action, which is good, which I think makes it a very good movie, but it also makes it a very sort of breathless movie in that yeah. everything constantly has to be moving forward. Yeah. It's it's like it's very Aristotelian. I mean, that's what Aristotle wanted to see, right? He wanted to see characters that were showing what they were doing through the actions that they were taking. And the most frustrating thing was for a character to talk about doing something and not do it, right? Like, um, and except in Aristotle, there would be like three of these things that would happen. Right? Like, like, like the the first fifteen minutes of the Superman movie would be the entire play, and the rest of it would be like a, ver- a verse history of Krypton. <laughs> like, like, this is about the man who picked up the oil rig and saved that helicopter from taking off he came from the line of Jorel, which is the city of hope and here's the catalog of the of the stewards of the city of hope who are the foremost scientists of krypton right and it's all in, in dactylic hexameter and crazy um, but uh and then at the end it's like oh how shall i pick up this oil rig let i put my hand upon its dirty side and heft it with my sun-fueled kryptonian strength you know i me superman am i man yes super only the gods 
be, yet if we lift these, such as gods do be, we, you know, like whatever. I mean, it wouldn't and rhyme then, in English. And then a chorus of steel girders would come yeah. out and say, <laughs> for lo, we the steel girders feel the pressure of Superman's hands upon us. We who have held up the oil rig for so many decades. We yeah. who have seen the comings and the goings of the roughnecks. We girders, we unhappy girders. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. Salted with corrosion of the northern seas and borne by the heat of our burning interior ruptures. We meet in the firm hands of Kal-El as an embrace of a lover and king. Oh, right. and great then of course, man of, And of course, at the very end, the very end Jor-El shows up, you know, as, as the deus ex machina and descends from the heavens and is like, all right, let's put everything right. Kal-El, you were right to lift aside that girder and save it from falling on the helicopter. You have done rightly. Uh, girders, you were wrong to fall on that helicopter, but it was good that my, my son, my only son, was in place to save you. Now come and join me in the city in the clouds, Kal-El. And then they both ascend off stage, and then we all have wine. <laughs> I love the idea of there just being an epilogue, being like, ah, you've put my memory chip into the USB slot so that I can come and explain to you everything that's happened in this play so far. <laughs> like, <laughs> and Jor-El shall restore amends. Right? Like, <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I think it's time to it's time to begin the Doric fanfare of the Overthinking It podcast theme song, and uh, bring this thing to uh, bring this thing to a close. So, if you would like to talk about Superman, you can email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can call or text two zero three two eight four six two. Ah, what's our phone number? Two eight five six four zero one. Uh, 203-285-6401 or you can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. Um, we are going to record a couple of extra uh, couple of extra episodes, a couple of bonus episodes we're doing because of some scheduling things for the summer. We are recording uh, out, of, out of sequence. So um, it just so happens that if you are listening to this on Monday, June 17th, 2013, we are going to record a, uh, a listener feedback episode, a a, uh, a response to questions and tweets and whatnot um, this uh, today. So if you have anything that you would ever you have ever thought that the overthinkers should tackle, uh, can you just uh, can you just tweet that to us at overthinking it or uh, email it to podcastoverthinkingit.com or call or text it to us at two zero three two eight five six four zero one because uh, uh, at long last um, the listener feedback episode has come back to New Haven. Uh, we'll be back next week with more podcast until then visit us on the web at www.overthinking.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it it probably doesn't deserve on my planet this is the symbol for savings Jorel had an outfit like that that he wore in private. Like, where did he come up with the idea? Oh no, the this Superman was their. This, no, this was their undergarment, right? Like, because yeah, Zod had he totally one. Like, we, this, we see him. We see him wearing it, like when he suits up in the armor to fight Zod or to fight Zod when he shows up. Yeah, this was like the 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 Under Armour compression shorts and quick wicking <laughs> polyester, you know, uh, tank top of Krypton. But did they have a cape? With their underpants? <laughs>